Hi, this is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. Today, we're going to talk about our publication, 10 Conflicts to Watch in 2024. It's this year's edition of a yearly piece we do with Foreign Policy magazine. You can also find it on our website. It was authored by Crisis Group's president, Comfortero, and by me. And to talk about the list with Comfort and me today, I'm happy to welcome back onto the show, Steve Pomper, who is Crisis Group's Chief of Policy. Comfort, Steve, welcome back on. Thanks, Richard. Thanks, Richard. And Happy New Year to all our listeners. So before we get into the conversation, let me just run through what's in the list this year. The 10 conflicts we identified are first, the war in Gaza. Second, the risks of a wider Middle East war. Then Sudan's civil war. Ukraine, of course. Myanmar, the ongoing conflict triggered by the coup a few years ago. Ethiopia, the violence in the Amhara and Oromor regions the country's brewing tensions with its neighbour Eritrea, the Sahel, gang violence in Haiti, tensions between Armenia and Azerbaijan after Azerbaijan's retaking of the Nagorno-Karabakh enclave over the past year, and then US-China relations. So those were the 10 on the list this year, and we'll get a chance during the episode to talk through most of them, I hope, but also some of the wider geopolitical trends that are shaping them. Let me just say very quickly a word or two about the list. Something we do every year. It's usually our most widely read piece of the year. We always get questions about why we include the conflicts we do, why we omit others, especially at a time when there are a lot of conflicts to choose from. In essence, we discuss with our colleagues across the world the wars, the potential crises that they want to draw attention to. It's usually a mix of conflicts that have the highest death toll, the gravest humanitarian consequences. Some we include because of their geopolitical significance, some because there's been a turn, a development that we think is worth flagging even an opportunity for diplomacy. We find that setting out a list, of course, is not about downplaying conflicts that are not on the list, but it's a way of setting an agenda for policymakers and for ourselves for for the year ahead. We'll try to make this as much of a three-way conversation as possible. And perhaps, Comfort, you could start by talking about some of the bigger picture trends that run through the list this year. Yes, thanks a lot, Richard. And I think what struck me was that, in a sense, 2024, and it's kind of like the opening line of the 10 conflicts, we talk about things falling apart. (laughs) And as somebody of Nigerian descent, you know, taking that from Chinue Achibi's book, that really does strike me. There's a sense in which the system is brittle, the international environment itself, decline and deterioration of the global peace and security environment as well. And let me just step back a bit because, you know, we've been doing the 10 conflicts for some time now, Richard. And I think in the last few years, yes, we've seen a series of major um, conflicts um, with different drivers, which are not necessarily connected. And yes, there is a sense of a wave of conflicts affecting different regions of the world and with um, different causes behind them. But the grim pictures um, is of war on the rise. But a few sort of impressions from my side, a few trend lines. I just want to limit myself to three big ones, which will shape 2024. The very first one, um, Richard, is a sense in which leaders feel that they can push the line and get away with what they want militarily. Um, I say that in the context of Ethiopia, for example, um, where a leader there feels more emboldened after a sense of a victor's peace in the Tigray. Um, there's a sense also, Richard, in which there are no guardrails or no constraints. I just came back, for example, last month, um, Richard, from the borders of Armenia and Azerbaijan. Number one, in the week where world leaders met in the General Assembly, a reclaiming of a territory. And just on the border, um, it's clear, for example, that Baku um, felt that those constraints that were usually imposed on it by Russia have been weakened, um, for example, because Russia is bogged down um, in Ukraine. The second quickly um, sort of um, impression that I have is that global politics itself is in disarray in an era where major powers are competing, um, this has opened the door to other actors. And we can talk about sort of regional powers, how they're influencing and feeling that they're not beholden to anyone. And then the last impression, Richard, one is left with a sense of foreboding, <laughs> which is um, a sense, and, but we don't need to be here. I, I use my conversation, for example, Richard, 
when we launched 10 Conflicts, either through the FP Live or through Chatham House, I used it to borrow a line that Steve had mentioned, that this is a year of waiting dangerously. And for an organisation that's all about conflict prevention, there's a sense in which leaders are waiting to see. And the question is why? Do they lack bandwidth? Do they feel they don't have the leverage, that there's little room um, to nudge and cajole actors in the right direction? So lots of impressions, but those three are the big ones. And I'd be curious to hear what were the impressions that you had and, and that you see um, for 2024. Yeah, so maybe just a few things. Comfort, you've done a series of presentations on the list. There's one I think there's probably online recordings available now. There's one you did at Chatham House, another one at Foreign Policy. You're going to be on Carnegie's podcast at some point soon. So people should check those out. We can put the links in the show notes. One of the things that came up in at least one of those interviews was whether the list this year was too bleak, whether we'd struck too pessimistic a tone. And I think you know, it's always a good question. It's hard to make a list of wars cheery. And I think it is possible to find some bright spots in diplomacy over the past year. We highlighted some in the piece. And first was the rapprochement between Iran and Saudi Arabia, a deal in 2023 between the two countries that has brought some real benefit. And we'll talk about some of that later, particularly given everything else that's going on in the Middle East. And then there was the November meeting between Chinese leader Xi Jinping, US President Joe Biden. And we'll talk towards the end of the show about US-China relations, but also an extremely important meeting in putting some of the guardrails back on a rivalry that was getting very fraught. And maybe to start with the good news before we get more gloomy. So it is possible to find some bright spots. Overall, though, I don't think there's really any escaping that there is a lot to worry about. You can tell the story with numbers. Wars today killing more people than they have for some time, more people displaced, more people in need of life-saving aid than has been the case for decades. You can also tell the story by looking at the proliferation of conflicts in different regions. This wave, maybe starting with the conflicts after the 2011 Arab revolutions in Syria, Yemen, Libya, the instability that that helped trigger in the Sahel and other parts of Africa. And then just in the past few years, wars in the South Caucasus over Nagorno-Karabakh, Azerbaijan, as you say, comfort, sensing that it could take back the enclave, Ethiopia's Tigray war, Myanmar, Ukraine, of course, and then just in the past year, these two devastating wars in Sudan and Gaza. So you can also tell the story by looking at this uptick in wars in different parts of the world. Plus, you also have some of this latest wave of conflicts or other instability affecting areas that are enormously strategically important, areas that matter to big powers. They matter to the world economy. They affect maritime trade routes and shipping. So Ukraine, it's not just about Russia violating a cornerstone of the international order, changing borders by force. But the war also affecting world food supplies. Ukrainian grain is still getting out through the Black Sea, but it's precarious. And now you have this escalation around the Red Sea, again, affecting shipping there. And that's really, in some ways, extraordinary. The Houthis that only a few years ago were rebels in the Yemeni highlands are now threatening part of the global economy. And then you have this increasing friction between China and its neighbours, many of whom are US allies in the Asia Pacific. So you're talking about valuable pieces of geopolitical real estate, Europe, the Middle East, Asia Pacific that are contested. So overall, comfort, I think, as you say, there's a lot to watch this year in the wars themselves, the suffering, the instability they cause in other big potential flashpoints and in the wider trends, the geopolitical flux that underpins uh, some of the uptick in violence over the past few years. And I mean, the only thing I would add, the sense of foreboding, I think that you described comfort has to do a lot with the fact that certain kinds of warfare and activity that were considered really beyond the pale, wars of conquest, you know, wars to achieve ethnic cleansing, and then also certain kinds of internal activity, coups uh, in the African coup belt, those kinds of things, I think people wanted to believe those were part of history, as well as sort of major interstate wars like we're seeing in the middle of Europe right now. And all that is resurgent right now. And there really is a worry, I think, and it's not illegitimate to worry about this, that every time the international system fails to put one of those back in the bottle and appears to tolerate it, it does create the possibility that you see more of it. I don't think it's far-fetched to say 
that maybe these things do have a sort of contagion effect, and that is worrying. I would say this, though. There is a possibility that five years from now, older versions of ourselves come back and talk about 2023 and 2024 as a golden age, because a lot of the architecture um, that was created during the Cold War that's underwritten security in uh, Europe and Asia, a lot of that architecture is still there. And to some extent, it's actually been strengthened. Uh, NATO was stronger than it was um, a couple of years ago. I think the U.S. underwritten security architecture in Asia is also stronger through the diplomatic efforts of this administration. But it's not necessarily a given that those things will survive, particularly if there's a big political change here in the United States, because we know that one of the likely candidates for president, uh, Donald Trump, is not a big fan of these alliances. And a lot of that could change. I'd like us to sort of shift our conversation from sort of the big picture geopolitical landscape in which we find ourselves in to look at the specifics. It shouldn't come as a surprise to any of our readers um, that we do start the 10 conflicts to watch, not just on, on Gaza and Israel-Palestine, but also the wider ramifications in the region. Um, as we speak, we are 100 or so days um, into the war, and the grim realities have been laid bare for all of us to, to see. And we've been very clear at Crisis Group. It's difficult to overstate that sort of what Israel suffered um, on the 7th of October and how much of a shock that's been. And we've been very clear about the right um, of Israel to defend it, its citizens. And it was a really good op-ed that our colleague wrote recently in the in the New York Times about the 100-plus days of hell for Israeli families waiting for the release of hostages. Yet at the same time, we've also been very clear in drawing out the unbelievable devastation, unbelievable um, suffering um, that has been facing the Gazans every day. Unspeakable numbers of deaths, including many children, many displaced. Um, and, I, and I speak also of our colleague Asmi and his family. So the question that we constantly ask is how sustainable today is one of Israel's sort of core objective of, of destroying Hamas. One real challenge is that there is no good answer um, for what to do with Hamas. And, and we've tried to sort of make that, that clear. Destroying it militarily um, is likely to finish off um, what is left of Gaza. I mean, people talk about the day after Gaza, but the question is what's going to be left? That's one set of dilemmas. The other set of dilemma, and it's even more stark now, because another part of the day after conversation, another bigger question is the question of what happened between Israel and Lebanon. Because just like Israel can't live next to Hamas, it cannot also, its politicians have said that they can't go back to the status quo with Hezbollah on its borders as well. So that's the second dilemma. And then the third dilemma, I think, and we're watching it, is the spreading of conflicts and the reality now of the war spilling um, into the Red Sea and the attacks that we've seen in the last week. And if you'll recall, the Saudi-led coalition of 2015 did not weaken the Houthis. And today we see a group that also got an abundance of weaponry, cruise missiles, ballistic missiles. And, you know, we're likely to see more attacks by the US and the UK. The group has become much more a durable problem on the Red Sea with implications for maritime security. And the question is, can you contain them? So maybe first on Gaza, before we move to the risks of a, of a wider war. And as you say, Comfort, it's important to recognise what Israel suffered on the 7th of October, the trauma felt across Israeli society. I think also important to recognise, and in no way does this justify the, the atrocities, the killing of civilians on the 7th of October, but also important to recognise the preceding decades of conflict and, and occupation and the fact that much of the world was looking away and had largely given up on trying to push toward a peaceful settlement of the conflict and toward Palestinian statehood. Now, Crisis Group came out quite early on after the start of Israel's Gaza campaign and we called for a ceasefire. We said that despite the horror of what had happened on the 7th of October, destroying Hamas, and, and here I'm not talking about the big political social movement, obviously destroying that isn't possible, but even destroying the military wing, the military infrastructure, getting at its leadership, 
that would be difficult to do at an acceptable cost. That The human toll would be too high, and by then the tactics the Israeli army was using in Gaza were clear. We also said that the political costs would be too high, both in terms of setting back any hope of Israeli-Palestinian peace, which was pretty slim even before the 7th of October, and in terms of the risks of escalation into a wider Middle East war, which we'll talk about in a moment. We also pointed to the danger that an intense military assault on Gaza would pose to the Israeli hostages. We said that overall the campaign that Israel was waging in the Strip seemed unlikely to make Israel itself safer over time. And what, we're now three months in, much of Hamas's leadership still seems intact. Much of its infrastructure has probably been destroyed, particularly in the north of Gaza, but much of it hasn't. And the only hostages that have been released have been secured through negotiations. I think maybe one was rescued at the beginning, but none since then. And at the same time, as you say, Comfort, we're sort of running out of words to describe the devastation, the suffering in Gaza. So it goes without saying, I think, today that, 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 that there's got to be a ceasefire. I mean, the level of killing and distress is intolerable. I think we also, though, have to recognise that it's not easy to chart a way out. And the likeliest scenario seems to be months more devastating military operations in the Strip. So the alternative would probably be something along the lines of what some Arab governments are proposing. We talked a bit about this on the podcast last week. So a ceasefire, the hostages, captives held in Gaza, freed in exchange for Palestinian prisoners, Israeli forces withdrawing from the Strip, an easing of the blockade some form of consensus Palestinian authority taking over. Maybe uh, people talk about security guarantees by outside powers. Some people suggest that maybe the Hamas leadership, maybe even some of the brigades would leave Gaza. And then something like that would hopefully lead to wider Israeli-Palestinian talks, a track towards Palestinian statehood in exchange for Israel normalising its relations with the Arab world. So it would be something like that. But the details, the sequencing, I mean, there's a lot to thrash out. And in some ways... Even talking about a day after can distract from the imperative of, a, you know, of, a, of an immediate and necessary ceasefire. There are, I think, more visible splits in Israel's war cabinet and between military leaders and Prime Minister Netanyahu. More Israeli politicians saying that they want the government to strike another deal to get hostages out, questioning the government's approach. And for weeks now, there's been signs of mounting frustration, impatience in Washington. But I think still the question is how much is the US going to push, especially as the risks of regional war grow, whether Washington is going to use the leverage it has. So basically conditioning military aid, conditioning uh, weapons supplies, not using the veto in the UN Security Council, how much it's prepared to use that to pressure Israel to stop. So I guess, I mean, from the perspective of how the United States has tried to manage its role in this conflict and also the risk of regional escalation as a threshold manner. And I think we've observed this in a number of different places. The The biggest contribution to de-escalation that the U.S. could make would be to, you know, to persuade the Israelis to agree to a ceasefire. As long as the conflict in Gaza continues, the risk of regional escalation is going to be higher than anybody would want it to be and will probably continue to increase. So far, Washington's done a pretty good job, in fact, of keeping a lid on all the different places the region could explode. Uh, But what they haven't succeeded in doing is pulling the Israelis back from the conflict. And I think the theory of, of U.S. engagement, which is the classical playbook, was that the U.S. would hug the Israelis close at a moment of incredible national trauma. That trauma wasn't just experienced in Israel. It was also experienced by the Jewish community here in the United States, the level of violence and the level of insecurity it created among Jews all around the world. And I think that probably trickled back to the Biden administration, to Biden himself, and informed the way in which the U.S. sort of ran its plays. So that big hug was, a, you know, a, a function of how the U.S. usually behaves under the circumstances, but I think it was also probably uh, deeply felt. Um, but the strategic idea behind that is that it also gives you some leverage to shape the way in which the conflict goes down. And there, I think it hasn't been that effective, to be honest, right? Maybe on the margins, but not in the main. If you look at clips on social media, you can see Israeli ministers, officials bragging about the ways in which they've resisted U.S. pressure. I mean, it's true. The United States has tolerated, um, 
a level of, of violence, um, a level of civilian harm that it probably wouldn't be comfortable with in, in many other contexts, if any. Um, and it continues to supply weapons unconditionally. It's vetoed um, you know, resolutions at the UN Security Council. So it's provided an enormous amount of cover um, for the Israelis. And it's not clear how much it's gotten in return. I think, again, this is probably informed partly by sincere emotional bond that the you know senior levels of the administration have with the Israeli people. I think it's partly informed by policy. I think it's partly informed by politics. Um, you know, the U.S. identifies, I think the American political class identifies as a friend of Israel. But there's also a huge political cost because there's a whole generation of people who looks at this um, through a very different lens. So President Biden's in a really tough bind. He'd love it if the Israelis would change. But of course, um, there's really an inverse correlation between his incentives and Netanyahu's incentives, right? Biden would love to see the Israelis find a way to come to some sort of ceasefire. That would be to his political advantage. But it's not to Netanyahu's political advantage to have this war foreshortened because that brings him to a moment of political judgment domestically. And frankly, you know, Netanyahu probably doesn't want to see things go all that well for Biden. I think he'd much rather deal with Donald Trump. Can we look at this in a different way? I mean, that, that I put a cynical hat on. If I was number crunching and looking at the electoral map, the other calculation um, is that Biden doesn't necessarily see that this is what's going to derail or undermine his presidency. But if there is this war, and Richard, you implied it at the very top, um, that the economic cost if you look at what's happening right now on the Red Sea, um, how shipping lanes are being compromised, what it means for, for consumers, what does this mean in terms of energy um, costs? What does this mean in terms of raw bread and butter issues? The Red Sea provides a different set of calculations that may be a lot more costly for America, but also for Europe, Richard, as well. Yeah, I think that's a, a a very good way of putting it. In essence, what seems to be now a pretty grave risk of a of a wider war, one that pits Iran and its non-state allies, the so-called axis of resistance, against the U.S. and and its allies, which would, as you say, hit the global economy and be disastrous for Biden in an election year. If we look at the main flashpoints, obviously the Lebanon-Israel border. The exchanges of fire that we talked about last week, Israelis have had to move from parts of the north. Things have been inching up. But I think Hezbollah and Iran are usually in lockstep with one another in, in their calculations. They don't want now a full-scale war with Israel. And broadly speaking, that's because Iran views Hezbollah as crucial to what it calls its forward defence, what it sees as deterrence against attacks on Iran itself by the US or, or Israel. It doesn't want to sacrifice Hezbollah unless it feels the Islamic Republic itself is threatened. Now, Israel may decide, as you say, comfort, that it's intolerable to live with, with Hezbollah on its border. Hezbollah is now openly right up against the border in a way that it wasn't before the 7th of October. And ideally, there'd be some sort of diplomatic path that would get Hezbollah to pull back. Even then, I think there's a chance Israel decides it can't live with such a powerful, hostile force uh, to, to its north. And so that's one flashpoint. Things have also been heating up in Iraq and Syria, where Iran-backed militias have fired on US bases so far mostly avoiding casualties. Israel and the US have struck and killed uh, Iranian forces. So there's this sort of potential tit-for-tat escalation there. And then there's the Red Sea comfort, which you mentioned, and the Houthis. And they're, again, supported by Iran. But it's not quite clear how much Iran can actually tell them what to do. Now, the Houthis say that their attacks on Red Sea shipping are related to Gaza, and that's certainly partly true. But the Houthis also gain from positioning themselves as defenders of Palestinians. They've shored up their support in Yemen at a time when they were unpopular. And I think bombing them, you know, as has happened with the US and UK strikes over, over recent days, bombing them seems unlikely to much change their calculations. So clearly a ceasefire in Gaza would as Steve said earlier, be the best way to calm things down. I mean, I think we should be clear the Red Sea probably won't calm down without a ceasefire in Gaza. But I think the question is whether that ceasefire would be enough or whether the Houthis now see shutting down attacks on Red Sea shipping as a form of, of leverage that can be used again. So there's a lot of ways uh, across the region that this could escalate. I think still 
despite what's happening in the Red Sea, that probably the risk of a Hezbollah-Israel war, that's still probably the most dangerous, simply because Hezbollah is extremely well armed, far more powerful than it was during the last war uh, it fought with Israel in 2006. It's rockets, it's long-range precision missiles could do a lot of damage in Israel. Israel could obviously devastate Lebanon. I think if there was a full-scale war between Hezbollah and Israel, Iran uh, would escalate across the region in a way that it also couldn't do in 2006. The US would inevitably be drawn in, and you're really looking at something that's, um, that's quite scary. Yeah, and I th- and I think I mean you've already seen you know Israel targeting Hamas and Hezbollah commanders you know deep inside Lebanon and in Beirut even you've seen the United States which has tried to confine um, its its retaliatory or it would say deterrent responses um, to um, to attacks on American troops in Syria um, to inside Syria so that it doesn't you know because if it attacks targets inside Iraq that creates tensions with Baghdad, but it, you, you've, you've seen it cross that line um, at the beginning of the month. So, you know, there, there is an element of escalation, even though both sides, as you say, Richard, seem to very much, you know, not want it. And of course, every time you raise the ante and you set a new benchmark, that becomes the floor. And the next time, you, you know, if you really want to make a statement, you have to go higher. And so, yeah, the longer it goes on, the higher the escalation risk becomes. That's the bottom line. So could we move to the other side of the Red Sea? Because it's not just the Gulf side. The politics around that waterway has become so contentious. Also a lot of competition for Red Sea access on the African coast. And Sudan's war, probably the worst today in terms of people being killed and displaced, but getting very little global attention. It's primarily a local conflict, competition for power between the Sudanese army and its paramilitary force, the rapid support forces with its roots in the Janjaweed, the genocide in Darfur a couple of decades ago, and then empowered by former Sudanese leader Omar al-Bashir. This is primarily a local war, but the RSF, the Rapid Support Forces, by all accounts are backed by the United Arab Emirates. And certainly today, some African, some Arab leaders see the RSF's advances as partly driven by the UAE's desire for influence around the Red Sea. And it's another war where, to pick up on the theme from earlier, diplomatic efforts are not really getting any traction, partly, not only, but partly because of this outside involvement. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a good way of summing it up. Things are going in the wrong direction and it's not clear what a way out looks like. There are four concerns that I have that make diplomacy or pathway out of the crisis possible. There are four reasons that I think it's going to be very difficult. One is what you pointed to, Richard, is that the war um, is expanding. It has expanded towards the east and is now engulfing the the country. And there's a sense in which we're watching um, Sudan becoming an unrecognisable shell of itself and a real sense of state failure. Um, especially after all the heady winds of the 2019 optimism of a revolution, a vibrant um, transformation led by a young generation. The second point for me as to why things are looking bad is that we are now sitting in a country that is divided um, roughly into two and controlled by the two belligerent forces. You, you mentioned already the rapid support force um, headed by Hemeti, um, who controls much of the West and the capital. And then there's the, the Sudanese armed forces as well. And while it's true um, that the army looks as though it's losing control and Hermeti appears ascendance, let's not assume, therefore, that he would be able to um, have support and cajole the entire country. Um, because the, the third point for me, which is, is just a sheer level of grievance deep resentment now in the country. And although there's frustration with the old order of Sudan, um, we should not assume that Hermeti is going to be able to ride victoriously and he's going to struggle um, to um, be able to win hearts and minds in the country. This is a paramilitary force that has been at the head of violence, the kind of genocidal violence that we saw in Darfur nearly 20 years ago. So it may appear ascendant today, but it doesn't mean that it's carrying the nation um, with it. 
And I think a fourth point, Richard, and it speaks to your opening, is that historically we've watched how um, various key actors, particularly the United States, um, Steve, and uh, the US pops up in a number of the crises we're watching. But historically, we've seen the US have sway in Sudan and has been able to do a lot of what you call um, sort of shoe leather diplomacy, um, that shuttle back and forth into the region to nudge, cajole, um, to influence and to, and to you know, to, to sanction and to incentivize um, various actors. But I think the reason why it's complicated this time. We're watching a very topsy-turvy, very uneven, very confusing, very messy mediation unfold is because each actor that is involved, whether an enabler of the crisis, whether a supporter um, of one of the actors in the conflict, um, whether it's providing material to one of the sides in the conflict, each actor has a very different notion of what stability should look like um, in the region. Um, the Red Sea, Richard, we ended our conversation just now about the Red Sea. The Red Sea politics is playing out in Sudan. For example, one of the key enablers of the conflict, um, the UAE, is trying to expand um, its business and its political heft and leverage into East Africa politics. The other side of this is Egypt also, um, who has reasons um, to be wanting to have a foothold in Sudan because it doesn't want to see a paramilitary force. I mean, it's been a backer of, of the Sudanese armed forces as well. So I think the big question now is is what comes next. Um, I must confess to both of you that it's difficult to see how you can forge um, a peace agreement without either Hemeti or Burhan, either the RSF or SAF being part, as egregious as that sounds. It's very hard, and I say this with a heavy heart, it's very hard to see how you can craft um, a peace process without either of these two, because the fundamental reasons for why they went to war, um, the contest over and the future of the security sector, those facts haven't changed. Comfort, you alluded to the fact that the United States has traditionally played, you know, a major role in Sudan diplomacy, and that's absolutely true. In fact, the amount of interest in Sudan and the U.S. government, which, you know, I think both has to do with geopolitical interests. It's obviously a big, important country, but also because of the value issues implicit in the United States' efforts to try and end the atrocities in Darfur. That legacy meant that there was a lot of high-level American attention um, given to crafting the Comprehensive Peace Agreement in 2005 and the diplomatic efforts to try and raise up international attention and pressure to end um, the atrocities in Darfur. People at the Deputy Secretary of State level were intimately involved with that diplomacy to help midwife uh, the separation of South Sudan from Sudan and, and make sure that that happened peacefully. And that does matter because senior level attention signals to all the different players in the region that it's a priority for the United States. And so, you know, when you're trying to marshal people to do things they might not otherwise want to do, it's easier to do that, you know, when it's clear that this is coming from the top. But you're not seeing that from the United States. And I think there are probably a couple of reasons for that. One you alluded to is that there's just, you know, envisaging some sort of pacted solution between the two sides here is just not very attractive because uh, neither side is an attractive uh, group of people for the U.S. to be aligned with. It's hard to see that either one of those, um, you know, groups really has the interests of the Sudanese people deep at heart. It might end the conflict, and that would be in the interest of the Sudanese people, but there's this other consideration as well. And the other issue is just, you know, it's just bandwidth. You know, the U.S. has got a lot of other, you know, big issues in the region. There's the Gaza conflict. There's managing escalatory risk um, related to that conflict. There's the fallout of the Ukraine war. Now, one of the answers to this um, that people have come up with is, why don't you appoint an envoy? But for various bureaucratic reasons, the State Department hasn't wanted that. The White House hasn't wanted to sort of force what they describe as a personnel issue. I suspect, though, what's really going on there is you know, they they don't want to signal that it's a bigger priority than it is for the United States because they have other priorities. Maybe that's unfair, but that is certainly the impression that the current situation gives. It's such an interesting illustration beyond obviously the tragedy of what's happening to Sudan, but it's such an interesting illustration of 
sort of US power and the changing nature of diplomacy and, and peacemaking. I mean, you go back nearly 20 years, as you say, the US was very engaged. A lot of American political capital put into trying to stop the genocide in Darfur. Even the Security Council deferred Omar al-Bashir to the International Criminal Court. I mean, those were the days when the council would do something like that. And then, of course, the Comprehensive Peace Agreement, the creation of South Sudan, you know, a new state, one of Africa countries very involved. But it wouldn't have happened without Washington and other Western countries. And yet today you see this sort of reluctance of the US to get involved at a more senior level. It's definitely partly bandwidth. They have a lot of other things on the agenda. I mean, but perhaps even more importantly is that the Gulf powers themselves were simply less involved in the Horn than they are today. And the involvement of more countries that have their own clout makes Western diplomacy, American diplomacy, harder. Though maybe we should say that even two decades ago, near the sort of apex of its power, the US couldn't shape Sudan's domestic politics in a way that actually got rid of Omar Bashir. I mean, they did their best, but you know, it wasn't until 2019 on the back of a you know local revolution that that actually happened. Well, and can I jump in on that, Richard? That's a third point I should have made, um, which is, uh, you know, to some extent, the United States attitude towards this conflict may be um, an outgrowth of what you just described. The fact that it hasn't worked in the past. Sometimes they've achieved temporary victories, peacekeepers and into Darfur, the birth of South Sudan. But um, the situation is then unspooled again and you've seen more violence and you've seen more political instability. But I can't let the two of you off the hook because you're, you're not completing that, the history. And that's why I made reference to 2019. You'll remember we pushed Steve in 2020. As difficult as that was, that you, you cannot put the burden of delivering transformation in Sudan onto the plate of the civilians without giving them something an important cushion. And what was that cushion? It was about the state-sponsored terrorism lifting that. It was about economic dividends. It was about making sure you lifted the economic levers of the country, lifting it away from the paramilitaries, um, from the army. I mean, you'll recall when we went to Sudan soon after 2019, um, who controlled the new buildings? Who had the new uniforms? Who had the new trucks? It was Hemeti. And meanwhile, you left the hard issue of the peace dividend in the hand of the civilians um, who admittedly were fragmented politically and who were divided in terms of what the future should look like, but didn't have the one thing that could help stare down um, the military and the paramilitary. He neither had the economic chops and neither the political backing and leverage that he, that he needed. I think that's the other story. Though the interesting thing there is that what you're describing is a legacy of this activist period that we're sort of yes. slightly remembering exactly. fondly right now. And and the irony of it is that that legacy ended up, you know, if not really undercutting, at least um, detracting from the momentum of the transition at a time when it was probably really important. Yeah. And just so people know, I mean, I'm sure most listeners are aware of this, but in essence, during the transition, that you, the, the moment you're talking about comfort, we, like other people, had hoped that the US would lift this state-sponsored terrorism designation that had been in place uh, on Sudan for, for years and, and was sort of an anachronism. And lifting it could have helped Sudan's civilian leaders pick up its economy, show some dividends to Sudanese, could have strengthened their hand in relation to the military, to the rapid support forces. And the US did eventually lift the designation, but really much too late. But Steve, when you say that we're kind of looking back fondly on an era of Western hegemony or Western activism, I mean, I think we said in the 10 conflicts, we've used similar language elsewhere, that our glasses shouldn't be too rose tinted. We shouldn't first overstate the power that the US enjoyed, even back then as a hegemon, or pretend that it always used that power to the good. Isn't it more just that the world has changed, that it's a more complicated world for the U.S. to operate in, that multipolarity makes it harder for the U.S. to do some of the things it might have been able to do, often for good, but, but sometimes also for ill some years ago? I think that's exactly right, Richard. It's a very different time, and the United States doesn't necessarily even have the options it did when it was engaging diplomatically 20, 15, even 10 years ago uh, in the region. But, you know, your point about it being a different world, being a more multipolar world, you know, it does have an impact in this, and, and this is relevant to Ukraine as well, um, 
it's one thing when the United States is a hegemonic power and it's asking states to do things that are in the service of, you know, its its agenda. And, and those countries don't have to worry about displeasing another major power. Um, but we're in a different world there. And this is what we've seen in the Ukraine context, right? Where the United States goes around and asks countries to come on board with sanctions or do other things um, that it wants it to do in support of Ukraine. And these countries may feel much more hesitancy about displeasing you know, Russia when they need certain things from Russia. So, you know, the, the ability of the United States to actually influence is crowded by that. And it has to be careful about its prioritization. And maybe just to add, I think that was very well put. I mean, it's partly that many capitals around the world don't want to sort of anger or alienate Russia or China, for example. But it's also, I think, particularly when we're talking about sort of these influential non-Western mid-sized powers that is now playing this sort of outsized role, it's that they feel they can chart their own course based on their own perceptions or at least their leaders' perceptions of their interests. And sometimes that might be why drawing closer to the US, the West, other times it may mean keeping their distance or closer ties to China or buying Russian oil despite Western sanctions. So they feel more confident themselves to do that. It's a feature of a multipolar system. How much the US, the West is going to be able to shape global politics is going to depend a lot on their relations with those powers, what they're offering them concretely. I would say there are two other things more internal to the United States. One of them is the sort of disintegration of the Cold War mindset that was really a unifying principle for the way in which the United States approached both hard and soft power in the world. I mean, U.S. alliances in Europe, in Asia, were really focused on the perceived threat from the Soviet Union. And when that went away, people started asking questions about those alliances. And that has grown over time. Same thing with respect to a lot of soft power tools. You know, U.S. support for human rights, the U.S. refugee admissions program, all those sprung up as tools for trying to elevate American soft power, diplomatic power, prestige during this contest with the Soviet Union. The further we are from the Cold War, the more those things sort of lose the bipartisan support behind them. The last thing that's changed is just the sort of sourness in American domestic politics and the, the anti-elitism that's born of a growing sense of inequality here and disempowerment by uh, people who don't feel like they're um, you know, benefiting from the system. So you're talking about these powers that look at the U.S. and sort of scratching their heads about whether they're going to follow the United States lead or not. Part of that, I think, is a function that, that they don't necessarily know who the United States is anymore, right? I mean, is it the United States of, of Joe Biden or is it going to end up being the United States of Donald Trump? The United States may be a little bit of a different country than people got used to it being during the Cold War. And um, that, I think, also just changes the complexion of what U.S. leaders can actually do and therefore how other states perceive the United States and whether they're willing to follow its lead. So that's a very good moment as we're talking about U.S. domestic politics to bring in the war in Ukraine. Hugely important to what happens in Europe, European security, but now something of a political football in Washington. So the front lines are largely static. Ukraine's counteroffensive didn't make the gains that Kiev and Western capitals had hoped, I think, as listeners probably all know. Stalemate, I think, is probably not quite the right word because both sides are trying to break through, but it is clearly settling into a war of attrition. I think the odds are still stacked against any sort of peace deal this year. There was an article in the New York Times in December that suggested Putin might be more open to talks than people thought. In the past, I think everything that the Kremlin has said suggested that the war for Russia wasn't just about the land it had annexed. It was about having a pliant government in Kiev. Ukraine even possibly demilitarized basically the country surrendering. And that any deal that left Russia in control of the territory that it's annexed would, you know, in essence for the Kremlin, just be a stepping stone to try to get more or to topple uh, Zelensky's government. But what the Times story suggested was that Putin may, in fact, actually be open to a, a land for peace deal. I think that is worth watching, keeping channels open, seeing if there are opportunities to dial down what is still a very dangerous and destructive war in the heart of Europe. 
you know, in a way that leaves Ukraine as a viable state, a sovereign state, one that's able to chart its own way in global affairs, it's always worth keeping that door open. Overall, though, that seems like a long shot. I mean, first of all, it's hard to see any Ukrainian leader, certainly not for now, President Zelensky, accepting a land for peace deal. It would be very difficult to persuade Ukrainians to give up their territory to Russia. You also, of course, have this terrible precedent of Russia gaining territory, gaining a chunk of its neighbour through conquest. But also, I think Putin himself has every incentive to wait, particularly given what's happening in Washington and seeing if US politics play more in his favour. And maybe then just before we move to the US, obviously Europe is watching what's happening in Washington nervously, much broader fears than just Ukraine, but US support to Ukraine is a particular concern. And we should say that whatever happens in the US, Europe is going to have to step up. European governments who see what's happening in Ukraine as, as, as existential, they are going to have to do more particularly thinking about military aid as well as the funding. But of course, US support to Ukraine has been critical over the last nearly two years. And, and what happens in Washington is going to be critical this year. So, so the US politics around this are, are really uh, interesting and really tough. Um, the, the administration has not given up, that's for sure. The White House has sort of created an interesting political dynamic by bundling the aid together with um, measures on border security that are attractive to at least some Republicans. So Republicans um, who might worry about appearing weak on uh, or, or, or running against base instincts on Ukraine policy can point to the border security uh, as a concession they're getting out of the Democrats. Uh, Democrats uh, who you know might worry about uh, uh, angering their base when it comes to border security can point to the Ukraine aid. And I think that may be enough to get it through the Senate. But the House of Representatives is a whole different kettle of fish. So look, if the if the aid package gets through, that's a lot of money for Ukraine. It's $60 billion. Uh, if it doesn't go through, there may be money in the pipeline uh, that from, from past appropriations. There are other authorities the U.S. can do to put some materiel in Ukrainian hands, though it would be far from ideal. And then, of course, one has to look ahead to what happens after November 2024. Um, if Biden wins, uh, I think then uh, there will be an opportunity to revisit this whole agenda. There could be new appropriations. Who knows? The political clock will reset. It might depend on what kind of makeup you see in the House and Senate. If Trump comes in, uh, he's already said he would he would slash the aid and force the two sides to sit down. Now, of course, he doesn't really have the capacity to do that, particularly if he's not giving any aid to Zelensky at the time. Uh, but... Uh, it, it goes to show you what his mindset is, and that could have a profound implication for how things go in Ukraine. Which brings me to the point that we raised in the 10 conflicts um, to watch. We raised a lot of concerns about the turmoil and dysfunction that is affecting um, the US and its role in peace and diplomacy. The US unparalleled global role is particularly clear in the Asia Pacific. And we watched very carefully the conversations, and we pushed throughout last year for a return to the to the dialogues between Xi Jinping and Biden, and they they got that talk um, last year um, where there was a restoration of military dialogue. But I think there is huge uncertainty um, about the role um, of the the U.S. And the one big takeaway I took from the ten conflicts is that we said. The U.S. plays a major role in various crises. If you have many uncertainties about its role, that is very unsettling. And I think we're all in that sort of same space of if and what, what does it look like um, come November? And what scenarios do we build up? I mean, U.S.-China is a, is a great example, in fact. If you look at it mm -hmm. through the lens of U.S. interests, but also mm -hmm. maybe a little bit through the lens of conflict prevention, it's a good example of what the U.S. can accomplish when it uses discipline and a sort of long-term perspective, when it's acting with a certain level of bipartisan support, what it can accomplish. I mean, look, on in the military sphere, it's really consolidated these alliances. You know, in terms of sort of really fortifying the United States' sort of strategic position around China, the Chinese probably don't like this very much, but it's been quite effective. And then in the sort of economic and industrial space, 
um, it's taken some decisions about limiting Chinese development of certain kinds of very sensitive technologies, which is really about keeping um, China several generations behind the United States with regard to the development of artificial intelligence technology. I don't know if it'll succeed or not, but you know it was a major effort. And they did all of these things and at the same time managed to bring the bilateral diplomacy to the point where Xi Jinping came to San Francisco late in last year and offered you know these useful concessions to the Biden administration uh, on, on the fentanyl precursor regulation, on military to military channels. Now, there were hiccups. You know, there was this Pelosi visit uh, to Taiwan that I think really um, created all kinds of blowback effects. There was the Chinese surveillance balloon that floated over the United States and blew diplomatic efforts out of the water for a period of, of months. Um, but they got those all back together. I think, though, the, the issue is we don't know if that's going to continue or how it will continue. Mm. And I think the worry that I have, if there is a Trump administration, both with respect to the Asian alliances and with respect to the European alliances, is those are only as effective as deterrence as they are successful in projecting that the United States means it, that it will actually come to the defense of the countries to whom it has extended its security umbrella. If it looks like the United States is wobbly, then there's going to really be a temptation, I think, on the part of its adversaries to test its resolve. And those tests could get really dangerous. Also, because it's not really clear how the United States would react. And Trump himself might not know how he would react under those circumstances. He may decide that he doesn't think he wants to defend a particular country. He may even send a signal that he doesn't want to defend a particular country. But when that country comes under attack, his political calculations may change. He may under, become under different kinds of pressure. I mean, one hopes we don't ever find ourselves in one, kind, one of these scenarios, but that's what worries me the most. Hold Your Fire is a production of the International Crisis Group. I'm Richard Atwood. Do check out the piece that we've been talking about today, 10 Conflicts to Watch in 2024. It's on our website, crisisgroup.org, and you can also find it on the foreign policy website. Thanks to our producers, Kevin Murphy, Heiko Schaub, and of course, as ever, thanks to all of you, our listeners. Feel free to get in touch, podcast at crisisgroup.org, or write to me directly, outward at crisisgroup.org. If you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, we love hearing from you. If you like the show, please do say something nice about us wherever you get your podcasts. Next week, I promise we will have a shorter episode. I know the last couple have been quite long, so I hope you'll join us again for that.